1: WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta author and producer Henry Owings describes his new book, Plus One Atlanta, as a 214-page full-color love letter to the city I've called home for over half my life. The book contains his compilation of flyers, posters, ticket stubs, and other concert memorabilia spanning the years 1962 to 2003, along with essays that reveal a storied time in our city. Later this hour, Henry Owings talks with City Light senior producer, Kim Drobes, first. We hear the term billions bandied about all the time. But one industry where it actually describes what's happening is video games. Games routinely earn over $120 billion annually. And market and consumer data company Statista estimates that in 2020, there were over 7 billion gamers, about 35% of the world's population. It's mind-boggling. Music composed for video games has evolved quickly, from the bleeps and bloops of the 1970s arcades to the sweeping cinematic soundtracks of today's sophisticated platforms. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is here with a look at What's happening in the exciting world of video game music? Scott, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Lois.
2: It is so great to be back. I'm kind of having a Cosmos flashback of Carl Sagan with his billions and billions. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely right that video games are in their heyday and only getting bigger this industry which is already huge has attracted the attention of tech giants like google and apple and netflix and amazon and others and they're all starting to offer gaming products
1: and scott compared to other historical timelines this one has been pretty short that's right
2: home and arcade gaming at the mall if you remember those days, (laughs) grew in the 1970s and then kind of exploded in the 1980s with games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers. Microsoft included Solitaire with Windows 3.0. Again, you have to be of a certain age to remember (laughs) that, that operating system. That was back in the 90s. And then we had a decade that was dominated by Sonic the Hedgehog and Sega Genesis. In the 2000s, we learned about The Sims, Xbox, Nintendo DS, Wii, and more. And just in the last decade or so, there's been a surge in mobile gaming and augmented, or AR, reality. So in just about 50 years, we have gone from Pong, which is two lines and a ball, to Minecraft, Pokemon Go, Switch, and PlayStation 4. And speaking of billions, the online cross-platform battle game Fortnite, alone earned $5.8 billion in sales in 2021 with 350 million players, more than the population of the United States.
1: Oh, astonishing. Scott, video games have grown in popularity and sophistication, sound design, including music soundtracks, have become essential to the experience, much as... They have been in film and TV. Music provides emotional direction, sets the scene, and helps immerse the players in the experience of the game world. That's right. And from somewhat... Inauspicious
2: beginnings. I remember being in the cornfields of Indiana in the 1970s playing (laughs) Pong, one of the earliest arcade video games on a black and white television set. It was a two dimensional table tennis game that sounded like this. This was 1972, uh, not terribly inspiring sound design, in fact, no music at all. But with symphonic soundtracks at the same time experiencing this resurgence with composers like John Williams, Howard Shore, and Alan Silvestri, games were starting to emulate the film-going experience in terms of music. The problem was that computers back then didn't pack a big punch in terms of processing power. The CPUs, the central processing units, could play tones, but it sucked away power from color and graphics. All of the music from this time up to the late 80s is referred to as 8-bit or chiptunes.
1: Pac-Man. In the early days, we heard music either at the menu or introduction, but not during the gameplay itself. Too much memory required.
2: Before composer Max Steiner convinced Hollywood producers that you could play music throughout a movie, like he did with King Kong in 1933, movies were about the same. There was music at the opening, at the closing, and sometimes when there was music in the movie itself, especially musicals. One of the first continuous background soundtracks for video games was Space Invaders in 1978. You remember all those aliens coming down from the cloud and you tried to blast them from the bottom with your lasers before they reached the bottom.
1: This is a pretty simple four-note bass theme, but it increases in speed and intensity as the aliens move closer. This sounds like the heart-pounding effect you might hear in an action or a horror movie.
2: It really does. And it doesn't have the depth and the richness of an orchestral soundtrack, but it has the urgency that picks up as the player encounters more tense moments. This was created by Tomohiro Nishikado from the Taito Arcade Game Company.
1: One of the most recognizable and beloved characters in all of Gamedom, the 1985 theme from Super Mario Brothers by Koji Kondo. There is a palpable connection from the use of leitmotifs or character themes in music that we hear in the operas of German composer Richard Wagner, the early film music of Eric Korngold and Max Steiner, and the familiar modern-day blockbuster soundtracks of John Williams and Michael Giacchino.
2: Yeah, and it's all part of that same lineage of creating an emotional connection and tagging characters and places and events with musical ideas, Koji Kondo is a major pioneer in the game music industry and one of the first employees at Nintendo to specialize solely in music composition for games. By the mid-1980s, video game consoles and computers had their own sound chips to provide more interesting music and sound effects. Fast forward to 2011, when the London Philharmonic Orchestra released a CD entitled The greatest video game music, which prominently featured Super Mario Brothers.
1: The theme from Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers by composer Kochi Kondo. We heard no less than the London Philharmonic Orchestra with conductor Andrew Skeet. In addition to classical and contemporary repertoire, concerts of video game music, like music for movies, have become a staple of the world's orchestra.
2: In fact, it's become a major revenue stream for the world's orchestras, and those concerts are often sold out. In addition to Koji Kondo, another really impactful figure in video game music emerged in the late 80s, and that's Nobuo Uematsu, known for his ingenious work on the role-playing Final Fantasy game franchise. Uematsu brought a classical symphonic approach to sound systems that at the time were really not quite up to live orchestral or sampled digital sophistication. The 1987 main theme for Final Fantasy sounded like this. This is fantastic craft and composition and deep warm feeling, but the electronic computer sound is not quite up to the maybe ideal that he had in mind. That would change later. Final Fantasy currently has 16 entries as well as numerous spinoffs and is certainly one of the most successful video games in history. Here's a modern day orchestral version of Uematsu's theme.
1: Music of Nobu Uematsu from Final Fantasy. This music exhibits the craft and artistry of the best film soundtracks, a beautiful, lyrical, flowing melody, rich orchestration, and deep emotion. By Koji Kondo, the main title from The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. This Nintendo 64 adventure game was developed in 1998, and the series has grown to 19 entries.
2: What's fascinating about this score is that it's one of the first examples of making music in the world of the game because players have to actually learn ocarina songs in order to move to next levels. This is not a standard woodwind instrument, but an ocarina is an ancient flute-like wind instrument. It looks a little bit like a seashell. And it's fun to notice the evolution of sound as it approaches a more realistic symphonic timbre or sound source. It still has a little bit of that 1980s electronic sound, but it's a lot better than those 8-bit bloops. Also, music began to reflect the actions of the players, not just this repetitive background loop.
1: WABE music contributor Scott Stewart. We've been talking about the evolution of video game music, and we'll be back with more of that conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 W-A-B-E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. Let's return to more of my conversation with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We've been discussing the evolution of video game music. Scott, we have featured music of composer Bruce Broughton on several occasions. It was in 1985 that Broughton's soundtrack to the Western Silverado made a big splash, and his music for Disney classics, theme parks, and the concert hall have continued to be staples in American musical culture. Bruce Broughton was the first composer to have a live orchestra record the soundtrack to a video game, Heart of Darkness, in 1998, the same year as The Ocarina of Time.
2: Bruce is a major figure in film and television music, and this is one of his kind of hidden credits on his resume. He's also currently experiencing a blazing concert hall career as well. Bruce is historically connected to the film music era of Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith, among others, and is one of the most skilled lyrical composers and brilliant orchestrators in the business even today. Heart of Darkness, the video game, puts the player in the role of Andy, a kid whose dog has been kidnapped by dark specters. And so oh, here no. I know. Here's a portion of the main title that Bruce wrote.
1: from the video game Heart of Darkness with music by the American composer Bruce Broughton. Scott, you have been a champion of Bruce Broughton's music. You have brought him to Atlanta, and you've conducted some wonderful concerts of his music. We must acknowledge that.
2: Well, I think uh, Bruce is a composer hero, and certainly have been honored to have some great associations with him through commissions and conducting. I think we begin to lump this quote unquote delivery system rather than calling something a video game genre, because styles are really unlimited in video games. So when you're talking about film, television, video game, any type of visual media that has music attached to it, the sky is the limit. The nineties were super fast paced for sound production in games. And by 1995, PlayStation developed a 24 channel sound chip that played CD quality sound.
1: Listening to the main title from Halo Combat Evolved, composed by the team of Martin O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore. Halo is a first person shooter game, which has been one of the most popular video games produced. It was released in 2001.
2: The Halo soundtrack brings together orchestral and choral forces chanting, large percussion section, and electronic overlay, and has a pretty good success in sales of the soundtrack itself, another trend that was established by film scores in the mid-20th century.
1: The Civilization video game series by Firaxis Games has been highly popular due to its establishment of the 4X genre, in which Players take turns building an empire. The principal designer was Soren Johnson.
2: Numerous composers have been brought in for the various iterations of Civilization games, and Civilization IV stands out for its use of Gregorian chant, minimalism, and especially world folk music. Composer Christopher Tin composed the title song Baba Yetu, which is a version of the Lord's Prayer in Swahili.
3: Baba yet to yet to be a bingoni yet to yet to a mina baba YETU YETU yet to live
1: Gina coel to coos baba yet to yet
3: to YETU a bingoni baba yet to yet to be Gina coel to coos to peleo chacunatet
1: From Civilization 4, music by Christopher Tin. We heard the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra with the Soweto Gospel Choir on their 2009 Grammy winning album Calling All Dawns. For this music, he received two Grammys one for Best Instrumental Arrangement and One for Best Crossover Album.
2: One of the most successful composers in gaming today is Winifred Phillips, who has provided music for the best-selling games like Sim Animals, God of War, and Little Big Planet. Her 2012 score for the third Assassin's Creed installment combined a chamber orchestra with African drumming and flutes, a really interesting sound palette.
1: The That Game Company, one word, Atmospheric Game Journey, was the first video game to have its soundtrack nominated for a Grammy in the category of Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. The composer of this beautiful soundtrack is Austin Wintory.
2: from the video game Journey. Austin Wintry is a brilliant composer and a super creative mind. He has numerous film credits and has lately had a non-stop video game composition career, both since the early 2000s or so. His music is very sensitive to the interactivity of player decisions in the world of the game. He's the master of transitions, creating these smooth connections to new musical material as the game environment changes. His music is also stunning to listen to, even if you're not playing the game.
1: Hmm. Video game music has received relatively little attention in the awards world. But in June of 2022, the Recording Academy, the group that sponsors the Grammys announced that they would be creating a new category called Best Score Soundtrack for Video Games and Other Interactive Media, separating it from film and TV.
2: It's nice to see those artists getting recognition for their work.
1: Oh, yes.
2: The gaming industry keeps growing and advancing, and it's likely that 3D graphics... Virtual reality or VR, artificial intelligence or AI will keep pushing the evolution of gaming to its next levels. It's clear that there's a very bright future for video gaming. And just as in the millennia's old history of music interacting with dramatic and visual events, soundtracks will continue to be crucial to shaping the experiences and the interactions of gamers all around the world.
1: Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor, a specialist in film music, and Scott, I must thank you for making me aware many years ago of how many job opportunities have opened up for students of music composition and theory, how much employment there is to be had for music majors.
2: Absolutely, I think that is the direction to go.
1: Yeah. Dr. Scott Stewart is also host of WABE's Strike Up the Band and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. As always, Scott, it's been a joy.
2: Thanks, Lois, great to be here.
1: Coming up in a moment, We'll hear from the Atlanta author and producer Henry Owings about his recent book, Plus One Atlanta Concert Ephemera from a Storied Metropolis. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Once upon a time before social media was the best way to advertise your new band, musicians took to the streets with eye-catching flyers. They'd staple them all over town in order to announce an upcoming show. Atlanta author, designer, publisher, and producer Henry Owings recently compiled a collection of these memory-inducing images called Plus One Atlanta, Concert Ephemera from a Storied Metropolis. Owings joined City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes via Zoom earlier in the year to talk about the collection and its vivid portrait of Atlanta music from 1962 to 2003. Owings began by explaining the phrase plus
0: one. When I came up with this idea, I wanted to have a a title that was kind of inside baseball. It basically means, you know, can you put me on the list plus one? It's sort of like a nod and a wink to kind of like Rock Club 101.
3: Indeed. So this collection spans the years of 1962 to 2003. And Mm -hmm. wow, that seems like it would have been a huge undertaking. What inspired you to indulge in this challenge?
0: Uh Well, um, I don't know what you've been doing the last couple of years, but um, I, I certainly wasn't going and seeing any shows. <laughs> so uh, I was working on a box set for the Athens Band Pylon, and it gave me a glimpse into all of this stuff that, you know, as a fan of Georgia music, I, I had always heard about, but I had never seen. And so it's one thing to talk to somebody who talks about seeing the Stooges at Richards in uh, Midtown or, or whatever, but it's another thing to find these artifacts. Mm. And so I just wanted to actually hold and scan them. And uh, just more than anything, I just wanted to get it right. And so, you know, that my inner editor came out Uh, And a couple of actual editors came out (laughs) and uh, helped me try and explain 50 years of music in this town.
3: It's amazing. And you're doing it through essays and through the visuals of these flyers. I read in your introduction that you scanned over 13,000 to compile this book. How did you choose which ones to include?
0: (laughs) That's a really good question. Um what i wanted to do was show atlanta i didn't want to show like my my personal biases i wanted to show warts and all i wanted to show the the cool bands i wanted to show the the lame bands and it's not incumbent upon me to say which is which i think one of my strengths as an editor is i didn't lean on anybody in particular my goal to try and hit as much as I could and not leave anything into question. You know, like as much as I've heard people over the years talk about the Point and the Metroplex and, you know, a lot of places that were here before I was in Georgia. Could I have put more 688 in there? Could I have done more with, you know, like Rose's Cantina? Of course, but that wasn't the point. I wanted to show C.W. Shaw's and that, you know, PJ's Nest and the the Rec Room and 485 Robinson and the I Defy House and C-11 and, 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 and. And then when you start going into the 60s, it just offered more opportunities to tell the story. It was, it was so much fun to do.
3: Yeah. And you did a really good job of getting out of your personal bubble of, you know, what you are really into musically. And to do so, you had to put a call out to ask people to send you these flyers. Was there any sort of a trust issue that came up with borrowing like the people's precious keepsakes?
0: Never. I think what I wanted to do was put people at ease. If somebody wasn't precious about it, great, but I just wanted to scan it and return it. I've I've kind of largely been very allergic to holding on to this stuff. I don't mm. want to hold on to it. If somebody gives it to me, it goes to a museum. If it's from Atlanta, it's going over to Emory. And if it's from Athens, it goes to UGA. And uh, this is profoundly intimate memories that people are sharing with me. And I take it very seriously
3: well this book contains so much atlanta history and it includes essays from well-known musicians and music lovers that at one time or another they were very connected to their decades music scene and the first essay is from comedian and actor david cross and he explains how the atlanta music scene helped him find his tribe across from that essay is a 1983 flyer from a club called the Nightery that features David Cross opening for RuPaul and the U-Hauls and the now explosion. Would you speak to the Nightery and its place in Atlanta indie music history?
0: Happily, to those that are driving around, those around Atlanta, the Nightery is where Eats is currently. It's the same building, same everything. You know, like David grew up in Roswell and his very first gig where he was paid money to perform was that show at the nitery and rupaul was not rupaul trademark it was rupaul
3: just another character in our
0: scene yeah and atlanta music scene more so than say chapel hill or birmingham or new orleans It was the place in the South where, you know, other than heteronormative males and females, they came here because they felt like they had a home. And RuPaul was one of them, and so was Benjamin from Smoke and Opal Fox Quartet. So were everybody from the Now Explosion, Tom Zerilli. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. Like, they all kind of created this scene out of nothing. I love that all of them have been so, just profoundly generous and hospitable and uh, patient with all of my questions. Because, I mean, I moved to Georgia in 1991. Once I got here, I was totally fine figuring everything out, but the stuff from the 60s and 70s I have to ask the questions. I mean, again, I'm going to stress this. This project has been a heck of a lot of fun.
3: Some of the other essays in the book from musicians like Jared Swilly of the Black Lips, Kelly Hogan, Tom Branch of Insane Jane. The essays seem to vary a lot in scope. So I'm very curious, what did you ask them to write about in order to produce such eclectic writing?
0: Um. I I used to publish a magazine called Chunklet, and so my ability to kind of like put on my, my editor's hat was not as difficult as it would be for some. When I talked to Bill from Mastodon to write the afterword to the book, what I wanted him to do was kind of present that they really worked hard they worked like a Herculean amount and they would never say that. But I think the the proof of of that is their success. Uh, and uh, you know, like with Jared, I mean, I've known Jared since he was like 16, 17. I used to sneak him into shows. I wanted him to talk about that, what it was like for him to be like the, the dum-dum from out in the burbs and to come in to, to see shows, go to 513. All of that, you know, one person in particular that I want to make sure gets a shout out is uh, Lady Claire Butler from The Now Explosion, who did a piece, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, like that late 70s, early 80s scene in Atlanta, which was, I mean, kids in a candy store. I told her, I said, I want you to talk about what it was like to be an original freak in Atlanta, like one of the original weirdos. Same thing with Murray Silver. He uh, booked The Grateful Dead in Reynolds Town when he was 16 in 1970. And so I wanted him to write about what it was like as a 16-year-old to pick up Jerry Garcia and the band from the airport.
3: Can you summarize the story that Murray shares about the Atlanta water supply and driving Jerry Garcia around town?
0: Yes. What Murray has told me is that he picked him up at the airport in his parents' station wagon, and then Jerry said, take us over to Georgia Tech, man. And this is 1970. So Murray, Murray in, his, in his parents' station wagon waits in his car, and then Jerry Gar... It's like something out of a movie. Jerry Garcia turns the corner, and he's holding what looks like a big clump of bed sheets, but upon closer inspection, it was all blotter paper.
3: And he went to Georgia Tech because why?
0: Well, they went to Georgia Tech for two reasons. Number one was so Jerry Garcia could get acid. Then the second thing was the Allman brothers were playing on the campus and Murray wanted to ask them if he could rent out their PA for the night. And then when, he, when the Almond brothers said, who is it for, and he said, the Grateful Dead, they said, well, if you let us open up for the Grateful Dead, you can have it for free. So Jerry Garcia comes back to the, the station wagon, and then Jerry says, uh, take me to the city's water supply. And Jerry wanted to dose the city of Atlanta. Fortunately, Murray thought better of it, and they, they do not do that um but the
3: teenager uh, thought better of it
0: oh the the teenager thought that but um the good news was everybody who went to the uh to the dead show uh that sunday night in may of 1970 everybody got a tab of blotter acid
1: if you are just joining us this is city lights on wabe i'm lois reitzes we're listening back to city lights senior producer Kim Drobe's conversation with the author, designer, and producer, Henry Owings. His new book is called Plus One Atlanta, Concert Ephemera from a Storied Metropolis.
3: Well, a couple of the essays, I think Kelly Hogan's and Tom Branch's particularly really explored just the idea and the feeling behind running around town and stapling up flyers. Can you speak to that particular culture?
0: Back in the good old days, you used to take pieces of paper and then staple them to telephone poles to get out information. Everybody I've talked to would say they would go on flyer patrol. Like they would get in the band's vehicle. Most of the time it was a van and then just drive around town and and staple it on any telephone pole they could. Wheat paste, staple, get the word out. I remember I was putting on a, a, a show over at the Sombre Reptile in 1997, and I wheat pasted a poster at the corner of uh, North and Highland. And uh, I wheat pasted it on there and then put padding glue on top of it. Like what you do notepads on, (laughs) that poster stayed in that sarcophagus for about four years. It was quite a badge of honor at the
3: time. I'm hearing the pride. I'm definitely. Here
0: yeah, well, play. you know, it's like you don't get to humble brag very much about flyers.
3: So, <laughs> Well, one flyer that caught my eye particularly and made me want to talk about a particular concept. It's a 1972 flyer from a club called The Headrest, and it features a full illustration from artist Robert Crumb. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering if you could speak to the fact that flyers back in the day incorporated artwork that they did not own and the artists were not really giving credit
0: yeah the robert crumb illustration in question is one of his famous it's like the the eight panels of a, a face melting and so this club called the headrest on uh, Ponce, they just used this Robert Crumb illustration. Like it basically takes up the top half of the piece of paper. And I remember calling my my attorneys and saying, can I use that? And they said, it's considered fair use because it, it was published in 1972, you're fine now. But uh, one thing I wanna make sure I bring up about that particular flyer, Kim, it was actually a broadside from the Great Speckled Bird. And uh, that show was the first time that Leonard Skinnerd played Atlanta, and they drank so much beer they owed the club money. It was like something out of the Blues Brothers.
3: <laughs> and for the unfamiliar, what is the Great Speckled Bird?
0: Uh, the Great Speckled Bird uh, was an alt weekly uh, back in the late sixties and early seventies that was the pulse of the southeast and. About six months ago, I got COVID. And uh, earlier that week, one of the uh, gentlemen from The Great Speckled Bird had given me eight boxes of The Great Speckled Bird, all the issues. And while I was self isolating, I went through every issue of The Great speckled bird. And so there are some true gems from The Great Speckled Bird in the book.
3: That's fantastic. And what an important publication for Atlanta's history. When I look at your book, some of my absolute favorite images are the monthly club calendars that have super high detail for every show on every day of the month. There's one from artist Randy Thomas for Club Rio in March of 88. And then there's a couple from artist Mike Shulman. One's for The Point, one's for Little Five Points. Is that the same gentleman who went on to create art for the Grateful Dead in the 90s?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's my kind of guy. I like that he's got a twinkle in his eye.
3: He's an incredible artist, an absolutely a incredible very artist. Incredible. Yeah. When I hit the part of the book that covers the 90s through 2003, I was shocked at how many of those shows I had been to and equally surprised at the emotional connection that I felt with those images. Mm. What are some of the flyers in the book that meant the most to you and why?
0: Man, to those who haven't seen the book, it's 215 pages and... It's kind of like saying which of your 215 babies is your favorite because each one of them moved me. So as far as like personally, it's like I wanted to communicate with everybody. Um, And so to have like Richards in the fall of 1973 with the New York Dolls and Skinner and the Stooges all playing within the same month. I mean, that that's pretty cool. The Grateful Dead flyer at Reynolds Town is pretty cool. Um, mastodon under the couch. I mean, mm. come on, that's like a chef's kiss right there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like Jared from the Black Lips, his band when he was in high school was called the Renegades. And the flyer of the Renegades in the book is from them at 513. And it is a flyer done on a disciplinary slip from when he was going to school at the time, so it like when uh, when I showed it to him, something that's very common with a lot of people when they see this book is they go, where that where did you find this? <laughs> uh, I mean, David Cross said that when I showed him that nightery flyer. It's like I love every last single one of them. I wouldn't put it in if I didn't really feel strongly about it.
3: Mm-hmm. The book includes addresses for every mm. club mentioned and. You explain that an army of sleuths helped you with this?
0: There's approximately a hundred venues shown on those two pages with addresses. Every line has been vetted.
3: I loved that part of the book just as much as the Flyers. I, you know, grew up in Atlanta and one of the venues that historically I always heard mentioned that I missed was Alex Cooley's Electric Ballroom. It was not until reading your book that I realized that that was where the Georgian Terrace Hotel is.
0: Can you believe it? I can't speak definitively about this. Uh, Like there have been finding every factual thing out has been difficult, but I've definitely found out that the electric ballroom becomes the Agora, which Mm -hmm. is right there across from the Fox. But the Georgian Terrace, like the basement, like they had shows back in the 60s and the 50s. And I've I've seen proof of that as well. It's a pretty bumping spot. Just
3: to mention that in the book, Henry is very open to more information and encourages anyone that might have a different opinion of where something is or wants to share more to get in touch. So this is this is a work in progress. And we're going to see more, right?
0: Yeah, I'm actually working on two more books right now one on Alabama, but another one on the state of Georgia. There have been again, just a lot of people just generously opening up their their homes to me and allowing me to come in with my scanner and my laptop and just scan in their dining room.
3: Well, as much as this book is about music, and art, it is also about preservation. Can you speak to your partnership with the Rose Library at Emory?
0: Emory has been very, very generous with me. They have, uh, I'm using air quotes here, a punk rock archive, and any hard copies I have are going to them. I want this to be shared and celebrated.
3: So at some point, someone can go down to Emory and look through this entire collection of actual paper.
0: Uh, any any paper that I have, yes. But the the thing that I must stress is I have fourteen thousand high quality digital scans, not photos. Scans of everything. It's been a uh, a challenge, but uh, I don't know what what else am I doing? <laughs> but I'm having a blast.
1: Atlanta author, designer, publisher, and producer, Henry Owings. His latest book, Plus One Atlanta, Concert Ephemera from a Storied Metropolis, is available now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about the Next Movement and their new Art in Transit project with Marta. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights has a new team member. Today we welcome our new associate producer, Janine Etter. We are very happy to have you join the WABE family. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.